Father, we thank you that you have called us together today. We thank you that your gospel has wooed us together. And we do pray that as we look at your providence over human history, we may stand before your throne with great awe, even bowing before your throne with great awe. And we do pray that this will ultimately secure our joy in you. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Well, friends, on the front porch of his little country store was a man called Abraham Lincoln and Barry, his wife. They stood there. Business was all gone. And Barry asked, quote, how much longer can we keep on going? How, how can we keep doing this? Lincoln answered, quote, it looks as if our business has just about winked out. Then he continued, you know, I wouldn't mind so much if I could just do what I want to do. I want to study law, Lincoln said. I wouldn't mind so much if we could sell everything we've got and pay all our bills and have just enough money to buy one book, just one book. Blackstone's commentary on English law. But I guess I can't. It seemed like Lincoln's hope, desire, was not going to be realised. Then... A strange-looking wagon was coming up the road. The driver angled it up close to the store porch, then looked at Lincoln and said, I'm trying to move my family out west, and I'm out of money, the man said. I've got a good barrel here, but I could sell it for 50 cents. Do you have 50 cents? Do you want this nice barrel? And Lincoln said, well, I guess I could do with a good old barrel and so Lincoln put his hands in his pockets, and what did he find? 50 cents. All day long, the barrel sat on the porch that day. Late into the evening, Lincoln walked out and looked down into the barrel. He saw something at the bottom of it. What was it? It was papers. But then he kept on looking, and there was something solid in there. He put his long arms down into the barrel, and he fumbled around and he hit that solid thing. He pulled out a book. This is crazy. A book. And he stood there petrified. It was Blackstone's commentary on English law. Lincoln later wrote, quote, I stood there holding the book and looking up towards the heavens. There came a deep impression on me that God had something for me to do. And he was showing me how he was making this happen. Why this miracle otherwise, unquote. Abraham Lincoln experienced the providential hand of God over his life. And friends, many of us, as we look back at our lives, we'll see God's hand in action over our lives, don't we? For example, <laughs> you wouldn't, you'll not believe this. I was in a youth group growing up. I was 16 and I had a peer of five boys at my youth group. And one lady said to me, out of all the boys, Jesse, I did not think that you would be the one who would end up in ministry. I was just the kind of guy, just playing my guitar, doing my own thing. I had no interest when I was 16 in the gospel, but God had his hands upon my life and directed me to a down a pathway, which was year 13, which ended me training in ministry. And here I am. That is God's providential hand over my life. And I see God's hand all around me. When I came to faith, one of the reasons why I came to faith, I was standing at the top of a mountain, the Big Brother Mountain, and I was looking down 
and I saw little people. I saw waves crashing against the shore. I saw a forest full of greenery. And I just said, wow, God, this is your creation. You are provident over all this. The doctrine of providence. After I graduated from high school, this belief became one of the sweetest and most comforting beliefs that I had ever savoured in my faith. What is providence though? Well, I was thinking about this question this week and I put together some quotes throughout human history from some of the greats. There's a saint called Leo the Great. He said, providence always watches over us and arranges all circumstances for our benefit, even when they are unpleasant for us. Stephen Charnock, a reformer said, providence is the great clock keeping time and order, not only hourly, but instantly to God's own honor. Benjamin Warfield said, in the infinite wisdom of the Lord of all the earth, each event falls with exact precision into its proper place in the unfolding of his divine plan. And King Solomon himself from the Old Testament said, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. This is the doctrine of God's providence. God arranges all our circumstances. He upholds all time and order. He unfolds all his plans and purposes. He establishes and determines all our steps. Behind the mysterious tapestry, which is the universe, stands a magnificent God, a provident God, and he's working all things together for our common good. The providence of God is the constant care for and his absolute rule over all creation for his own glory and the good of his creatures, me and you. But there's one objection to this truth comes in the form of a question and this is a real question people ask if God is provident if he establishes our very steps does that make him the author of our sin in answering this question I must confess even my friends many people have lost our common faith in the gospel they say, if God is provident over our steps, he must be responsible for our sins. And if God is responsible for our sins, he cannot be good. He's not a good God. He's not a powerful God. He doesn't really care about me and creation. In fact, he's not good at all. And I find this, friends, a very sad conclusion. I find this very sad that people lose their faith coming to that conclusion. I think we must ask a better question. And here's the better question. Is it possible for God to establish our steps but not be responsible for our sin? Is it possible? Well, as we come to the end of Genesis, I'll answer this question with a resounding yes. God can even use our human evil, our wickedness, our bad choices to work all things according to the counsel of his will, Paul the Apostle said. And so and as we see this truth unfold and be exemplified in the story of Joseph, 
we will see that Joseph say to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. We see it there. And why did God mean it for good? The evil action of selling Joseph into slavery was to ultimately save the people from famine. And so our God is a God who stands behind human creation and he uses sad situations ultimately to bring us salvation. Salvation. And so friends, I'd like to look at our first point today from this statement. And the first thing I see in this text is that God is provident over our salvation. And I'd like to um, look at that story that Peter just read out one more time. And so we have Jacob, the father of Joseph. He has just died. The great patriarch of the faith is gone. And so the sons of Jacob, the brothers assumed that they would be liable to punishment because of their evil against Joseph. And so the brothers are panicking at this stage. While it seemed like reconciliation had taken place in chapter 45, the brothers are still nervous because they thought with Jacob still alive, he was just protecting them from the wrath of Joseph. And so the brothers are in fear and they send a letter to Joseph. Joseph received the letter. And how did Joseph react? Verse 17. He wept. He cried. The fact that his brothers didn't realize that this reconciliation had fully taken place may have upset him deeply. He was full of emotions. The problems caused by the web of sins in the past caused him to well up with tears. But Joseph, knowing that he did indeed forgive his brothers, offers them comfort, offers his anxious brothers comfort. He says, verse 19, don't be afraid of me. Even though I'm the second in charge of the whole of Egypt, and even though that you sinned against me and almost took my innocent life, you are forgiven. Wow, we see the gospel of reconciliation exemplified in the character of Joseph. Even though his brothers once conspired to murder him, he knew it was not without purpose. God used their evil to provide care and hope for the entire family. He said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Even though the brothers of Joseph were responsible for selling him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver, God used this unfortunate situation for his ultimate good purpose of bringing salvation. And so the brothers were indeed comforted. This whole scheme of events, which put Joseph in a very terrible situation, was ultimately redemptive. And so what do we first see in this text? That God is provident over salvation. But we also see another thing in the text. And this is our main theme today. That God is also provident over our sin. But we're still left asking this question, is it possible for God to establish our steps but not be responsible for our sin? Well, before we look at that, I want to show you that it was actually God who sent Joseph to Egypt. He sent Joseph to Egypt through evil steps, so the, the evil works of the brothers. Look at the screen with me. 
Genesis 45, verse 5. God sent me before you to preserve your life. It wasn't the brothers of Joseph. It was God. Verse 45, verse 7. Chapter 45, verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on earth. God sent. Genesis 45, 8. It was not you who sent me here, but God. The psalmist makes it so plain. When God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who sold as a slave. And so God, this makes us very uncomfortable, doesn't it? God, according to the inerrant word of God, was responsible for sending Joseph to Egypt. But we're then left asking a question. Does that mean that God is responsible for our evil that got him there? The evil, sorry, that got him there. Well, as we continue to read scriptures, we see that God cannot be tempted by sin. Daniel, the great prophet in Babylon, said all his works are right and his ways are just. In other words, God it is impossible for God as a perfect God, a holy God, who can't stand sin to actually sin. God cannot sin. And so what is going on here? Does that mean that God is responsible for the evil that got Joseph there? Since he sent Joseph there through evil actions? No. God is not responsible for human evil. Even though God predetermines evil actions that we live out, he cannot sin. In his infinite wisdom, God considers trillions of factors before the dawn of time, past, present, future. He then orchestrates salvation through human evil in accordance with his good and very end, and that is ultimately to give us salvation. Redemption, forgiveness of sin. Even though God permits human wickedness, the sin he willed cannot defile his very being, his holiness. So what, when it comes down to how this all works, I must confess, and it's not going to be a very um, uh, satisfying answer, but I don't know. How can God use evil for his good? I don't know. But I remember the end of Romans 11. Paul finishes that great text which looks at the sovereignty of God. And he says this. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? The reality is as weak, finite, simple creatures, which is we humans, we can never fully fathom the mind of God. How do two acts of willing, one evil, the brothers, and one good, God, work together to make the brothers guilty and God innocent? It's a mystery to me. All I know is this, and I love the words of John Piper in that book I recommended, the big red one. He says this, 
If weak humans can find ways to handle radioactive uranium to produce useful energy without being contaminated by the deadly radiation, it is likely that our infinite, all-powerful God can handle the deadly nature of sin without contamination. And so is it then possible for God to establish our steps but not be responsible for our evil? Yes. God can use our brokenness for his ultimate good. And how, do, how, how does he do this work without polluting himself? I do not know. But am I happy that God can use our sin to bring me salvation, even though I can't understand it? Yes, I'm happy. I'm actually joyful. I'm full of delight and pleasure that God can use broken people like me and you to bring salvation to other people. Wow, look at your lives. Are they broken? Are they shattered? Do you sometimes get up wondering, can I even keep on going each day? Lord, I'm an absolute failure. But God can even use you and your evil and your wickedness and your rebellion and your lack of fear of God for his ultimate good purposes of bringing salvation to your neighbor who has never heard the good news of salvation on offer through Jesus Christ. And so, friends, when the difficulties, the doubts, the temptations come my way, providence teaches me ultimately, and I think this is the chief fruit of providence, to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. God has my back. I live in his hands, even though I fail, even though that God can use my light momentary affliction to prepare me for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I know that my brokenness will ultimately end in the common good of this world, being completely restored and redeemed by our Lord. The providence of God rules, friends, even over our sin. And that's my second main point. And so before we go on, I would just like to conclude my ideas that I presented today in the text of Genesis is that God is both provident. He rules over our salvation and our sin. And that's all for his ultimate good of bringing about our salvation. And friends, I'd like to share this with you. Some people say this is just an Old Testament idea. It's actually not. It's something that goes right through Scripture. This gospel of salvation is actually at the heart of the message of Christ, that God is provident over both sin and salvation. I'd like to show you some scriptures today from Acts. When the Jews and Gentiles cooperated to murder Jesus Christ, the early church taught, quote, they did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Peter the Apostle also said, quote, Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not a random historical fluke. I actually believe that God stands outside of time and he created the world. He created us as free will creatures knowing that we would rebel and that he would ultimately need to reconcile us back to himself through the cross. But before the dawn of time, I believe God was looking at human history and saw, wow, we need a redeemer. And there was a covenant made between God and God the Son. And Jesus willfully said, yes, Father, I will be incarnate. I'll be sent into this chaos to ultimately die for this rebellious humanity. And so before the dawn of time, God decreed the death of his son 
And friends, as Colin Buchanan used to sing as I was a kid, God is a great big God. He is so great that we cannot fathom his greatness. His rulings are made from eternity past. All that was done to Christ, either by Jews or Gentiles, by Herod or Pontius Pilate, was according to his secret will that we will never fully be able to fathom. But then this neither makes God the author of sin, nor excuses sinful actions of men, or breaches the freedom of their choice. God graciously willed the horror of the cross from betrayal to nails to secure our joy. Yeah? I'll say that again. God graciously willed the horror of the cross from betrayal to nails to secure our joy. Joy is the ultimate result gift, blessing of God's providence over our sin and salvation. Joy. Sovereign joy, as I like to call it. And this might seem a bit poetic, but it is a sweet joy. It is the sweet gift of grace that comes when we are awakened to the providence of God revealed in His Son. Sovereign joy, it is the sprouting seeds of divine mercy breaking forth in the cold desert of our hearts. Sovereign joy, it is the moment of clearest awareness when your soul becomes one with Christ by faith. Sovereign joy, it arrives when we are at the end of ourselves and humbled before the majesty of Jesus. Sovereign joy is the natural overflow of a man and woman who has experienced the providence of God in Christ. And so how do we obtain this sovereign joy, this joy that's revealed in the gospel? Paul the Apostle says, faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, Romans 4.25. If we believe that our redemption is accomplished through his blood, the doorway to eternal joy in this fleeting world is opened wide. We can be washed clean from all our sin and its lethal depressions. Our restless heart can be liberated from addictions and idols. Through faith in Jesus, the unshakable gift of sovereign joy enters deep into our hearts, bringing relief, changing our lives forever. We now become the happiest, most triumphant, most optimistic people in all the world because we know now that we are one with God in Christ. But I'd like to say before I finish this sermon, many of us reject this joy. C.S. Lewis once said, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling with the drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us 
We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what it's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. What's he trying to say here? We sometimes are like children who are playing in the mud and we're finding delight in that mud. But through Christ, there's a greater joy on offer. And it's like a, a wonderful holiday at the sea in compared to that mud pie. Rather than taking hold of the wonderful joy revealed in Jesus Christ, we often turn inward to our anxiety, hopelessness or anger, or outward to pornography, liquor and busyness, the slums of joy in this life. While there are often diagnosable medical solutions to cure these problems, our hearts will forever be restless until they find their ultimate rest in God through Jesus Christ. Here's the answer to our world of despair. Here's the cure for our weary soul. Here's our source of absolute joy. Here's our access into eternal bliss. Jesus. Jesus. Only here, only known because of God's providence over our sin and salvation. Jesus, our eternal joy, our sovereign joy, our absolute joy. Have you tasted that joy? When I was a teenager and turned to Christ, it was like a rushing waterfall through my soul. The alcohol, the bodyboarding, all these other things I once enjoyed were like the slums of joy and compared to that rich treasure that I had taken hold of. And I want that for you. And so friends, I therefore urge you today to take hold of that joy on offer through Jesus Christ. God graciously willed the horror of the cross to secure our joy. My prayer then is this for you today, that you will believe in Jesus Christ and enjoy the ultimate gift of God's providence over our sin and salvation. Eternal joy, the greatest relief, the greatest comfort. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you that you have placed me here to unfold and proclaim the mysteries that you've revealed to us. While much of this remains a mystery, Lord, we thank you that your word proclaims that you are provident over our sin and salvation and that you desire to secure in us an eternal joy. And so, Lord, may we go away today being filled with that spirit of joy because we have faith in Christ. For, sorry, if we have faith in Christ, we will be your eternal people forever. We pray this 